Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music welcome to sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media i'm jim diorgatis the pop music critic at the chicago sun times and i'm greg Cotts. i write about rock and roll for the chicago tribune today on the world's only rock and roll talk show jim and i are going to welcome danny goldberg a music insider who has worked with everyone from led zeppelin to nirvana Plus, we'll review the debut album from the much-hyped indie rockers, Ra Ra Riot. You are listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Greg, we are celebrating the end, actually, of uh, the big wedding season, at least for this summer. This was a story that caught my eye a couple of weeks ago. Bridal Guide magazine has issued its list of the top 90 (laughs) wedding songs based on an extensive polling of its readers and of recent brides. Key categories throughout your wedding ceremony and the following uh, reception, like the bridal party entrance and the recessional and the bouquet toss later on. In each of those categories, they had the traditional favorites and then the popular favorites and then the modern favorites for songs for those important moments. Moments in in a reception, yeah. all of which just reminds me how god awful wedding music is. Yeah, you look at this list, Jim, of ninety songs that uh, get played most frequently at weddings, and you go, "I never want to go to another wedding again." <laughs> I'm reminded of why I didn't want to go to a wedding ever again. But I, well, well, listen to this. So, so you know, among the uh, the bridal party entrance favorites, of course, there's Canon and D, the Pachelbel. You know, that's that's like right. <laughs> you know, as traditional goes. But also, apparently, popular right now is the Ocean's Eleven soundtrack, in particular the Claire. De Loon theme. Yeah. Why? Why? You would think that people that spend so much time, I, I mean, I know people that spend months, even years, planning their wedding. Yeah, but you have unhealthy friends. Yeah, but are you talking about, you're talking about, you like the Obsessive. shotgun, the shotgun wedding at the, at City Hall or something like that, get it over with, bada boom, bada bing, it's done, it's over with. Absolutely. It was me and Carmel, my wife, on a bridge in California in the middle of a park with some ducks and this minister who was handing dog biscuits to the dogs in the park the whole time. I think that a was lot it. Of, no, you know, no music. I think a lot of guys would appreciate that kind of wedding. I yeah, it was so. no mess, no fuss. Unfortunately, I don't know many women like that. They would prefer the more elaborate uh, ceremony. And with that comes planning the music. I think that's a key part of any wedding. I mean, obviously, we're obsessed with music, so it would be Not important. as obsessed as this list. I mean, you know, they broke it down to the mother and son dance. Do you play What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong, or do you go with something a little more modern, like Times of Our Lives by Paul Anka? You know, I'm immediately suspicious of weddings that rely on the traditional type of wedding bands who inevitably play cover versions of songs that are popular on the radio now or in any 
particular period. You know, say take the last thirty years. I mean, you know, we played celebrate at the top. I mean, how many weddings have you been at where that has been played? How many weddings have you been at where they play Proud Mary? You know, they butcher that yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. Personally, I think the best weddings are the one where where you get some serious ethnic music going on. You know, mm. I'm talking about. I come from a heavily Polish family. One of the happiest days of my life is watching my mom and dad dance a polka at uh, my my sister's wedding. You know, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. like okay, yeah. you know, they, they get, they're bringing the old country traditions back, and so you're it, going for authentic. You know, I'm going for ethnic. You know, I'm thinking that's where the real celebratory music. You know, at a Jewish wedding, if you don't hear some klezmer music that gets yeah. everybody dancing, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not really a wedding until that happens. You know, if you're going to an East European wet- wedding, I want to see some serious Cossack dancing going on. I'm fleshing, I'm fleshing on that scene <laughs> in Godfather 2, where Frankie Pantangeli is trying to get the band to play the Tarantella, the Italian traditional wedding song, and instead they play Pop Goes the Weasel. Yeah. You know? All right, but I gotta say, there is something appealingly postmodern and very, very funny, especially during an awful wedding. I was at this large wedding, tons of people, and, you know, they play wine MCA and everybody gets up oh, and dances. Ninety-five yeah, yeah. year old grandma and all the little kids. That's America. But you throw some hand motions in there and you got everybody going. You know, the participatory dancing. You know, I've thought about this and if I had to do my wedding over again, you know, the, the kinds of, what kind of songs would I want to hear there? First of all, the most romantic song ever written is the Flamingos. I only have eyes for you. I That's the song you want to do the slow dance to. And the song I want to hear when things are picking up a little bit, Replacements, I Will Dare. <laughs> you know? it's You're both, you're both sort of the... jumping into the deep end that day. You All know? Right. You're jumping into the deep end and say, okay, we're taking a risk together. If you will dare, I will dare. Joy, you need that ecstasy. And I'm thinking about Stevie Wonder. And I'm thinking about I Was Made to Love Her. And especially that part where he's singing all through thick and thin, our love just won't end because I love you, baby, love you, baby. And the way he lets out that joyous, ecstatic scream right in that bridge section of that song, that to me is cool in the gang times 10. Celebrate times 10. Greg, I am touched by your uh, by your picks. They're they're all very romantic, very meaningful. But I have to say, I have to think about music and have opinions about music. Three hundred and fifty days a year, I, I I want my wedding day off. I I seed completely. If I were to get married again, I would seed the playlist to my darling wife Carmel. Okay, but you know, we threw this question out via the uh, soundopinions.org message board and our weekly newsletter, and uh, people had some some good picks. Lori Keller had uh, Big Day by XTC. Amy Brom wrote in to say that uh, Lyle Lovitz, she's no lady, she's my wife. <laughs> uh, she and her husband danced to that. Apparently, there's still married so i guess yeah, it, yeah. it worked a lot of people wrote in too with uh, do you realize the flaming lips song and uh, and we've had experience with that we actually had somebody at the station request the flaming lips announce their engagement That's on true. stage once if uh, if you would like to in the future uh, give us your two cents on this or any other subject our hotline is 1-888-859-1800 or email us at interact at soundopinions.org
What you're listening to is Led Zeppelin, one of the greatest bands of the late 60s and early 70s. And who we're going to talk to next is a man who worked very closely with Led Zeppelin, among many other bands, throughout an illustrious 40-year career. Chronicled in a book called Bumping into Genius is My Life Inside the Rock and Roll Business by Danny Goldberg. Goldberg's uh, a man who's worn many hats in those 40 years, Jim. Not only was he the public relations agent for Led Zeppelin at the height of their powers in the 70s, but he went on to artist management, most notably with Nirvana, and was the manager of that band when they were ruling the charts in the early 90s and uh, on the day that Kurt Cobain killed himself. He also worked very closely with uh, Cobain's wife, Courtney Love, has run a couple of record labels, done just about everything you can do in the record business besides make a record himself. Danny Goldberg now joins us from New York City. Welcome to the show, Danny. Thank you so much for having me on. I love your show. 40 years in the music business, a pretty extraordinary ride as documented in uh, Bumping Into Geniuses, My Life Inside the Rock and Roll Business. So, Danny, let's start at the beginning. You're 19 years old. One of your first assignments as a, as a fledgling music writer is only the, one of the biggest rock festivals of all time, right? Yeah, it was Woodstock Festival. I, I was a clerk and a, and a freelancer for, for, Wood, for Billboard. And um, the, the regular writers there were guys that were older guys, in other words, over 30. And uh, their idea of a good assignment was uh, Copacabana or places where you could get free <laughs> drinks. So none of them wanted to go to Woodstock, so they gave it to me, and I was thrilled to go and uh, went up there in a limo with the press agent for Woodstock and uh, had a hotel room. Uh, I felt a little inauthentic that I didn't get <laughs> muddied up, but it was more comfortable. You paint a fairly idyllic picture of, of what you saw there, and I, I guess part of it was just, just the fact that you're 19 and experiencing all this kind of for the first time on that sort of scale. It was certainly the first time I experienced the crowd like that, but I think it might have been the first time that a lot of people experienced it. It was It's famous because it was the first of something, and it was the first in terms of the magnitude of the audience that kind of came together with a with a hippie attitude, with long hair. And I think the Woods, the movie of the Woodstock is pretty faithful to, to what I felt. It was uh, – people were nice to each other. It was really a happy time. Where did that idealism start to, to leave rock and roll, Danny? And how did that fit in with, with your journey? I mean if I can paraphrase your, your transition from Billboard and Record World into the world of PR, you didn't want to criticize the musicians. You, you were – like the music too much to think that you had that critical and, and journalistic distance, right? I, you know, I never had the um, attitude of a critic. Uh, maybe I didn't have the discernment, but uh, I, I loved good rock criticism. I was a reader of Rolling, the early Rolling Stone and Crawdaddy, and, and I loved that people were writing about this music seriously and as an art form, and it, it sort of made me feel... Uh, cool for liking it. But uh, when it came to writing about it, I wrote this one review of the Rascals for, for Billboard, uh, which were, uh, you know, a guilty pleasure. I loved the Rascals. I didn't think they were at the same stage artistically of, uh, of the Rolling Stones or Bob Dylan or anything like that. But I loved a lot of their singles. But they were known for, for the keyboard guys, Felix Cavallari and Eddie Brigatti. And, and I, I dismissively uh, said that the, um, that the guitar player, Gene Cornish, had twanged his guitar because I wanted to say something critical because that's what you're supposed to do if you're a critic. 
And a day after it was published, he called me at Billboard. I'd never met him. I'd never talked to a, a rock musician before. And it was hurt feelings, wounded feelings. And I felt so guilty that I never really wanted to write anything critical again, which made me uh, fairly useless as a critic. Uh, I was a guy that just wanted to enthuse about people. So uh, after, uh, you know, I got to write some reviews and, you know, I enjoyed the getting a byline and the process of writing. But I, I wasn't really a good critic. But I, that same quality, I think, made me a pretty good PR guy. Well, it was an odd period. Rock criticism was just being formed. And there was a lot of money. For some reason, the record companies thought that critics were going to sell records. Uh, musicians were treated not as well as the critics. Critics were given limos and free trips around the world and all. And uh, how much of that were you doling out once you got to be a PR guy? In the early years, I was able to do it. Uh, certainly when I worked for Led Zeppelin, um, you know, I could fly people around and uh, put them in good hotels. In the late 60s, early 70s, it was more important as as uh, rock radio became more powerful. The, the press relative to radio became somewhat less important. But there were certain artists that still were launched by the press. And that would certainly include somebody like Bruce Springsteen, U2. It would include a lot of people that later became big radio artists, but whose initial identity and fan base was was caused by the enthusiasm of critics. And that sort of cult of people who cared about critics maybe influenced their friends or just set, set a ball in motion, allowed people to tour and break even. So they were part of the business. They were never as important as to the record companies as radio was, but but they were more important then than than, than they later became, and, and they justified the, a certain amount of coddling. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, coddling on the one hand, but also the access that people were given, uh, you know, Cameron Crowe getting to spend a tremendous amount of time with the Eagles, you know, similarly the people who were chosen to, to get access to Led Zeppelin. Um, we didn't give people all that much access to them. I wanted them to get good press. That's what they hired me to do. I think Cameron, uh, the first time when he wrote about them for the L.A. Times, had an interview of an hour, an hour and a half. They liked it. And then when it was time to do the Rolling Stone cover, he came out for, uh, I think, two days on the road. So uh, he got a lot out of the time he spent with them. And, and he was somebody that made the artist very comfortable. You know, in the case of Zeppelin, there were there were not people spending huge amounts of time with them. But Robert Plant in particular was very articulate then as he is now and gave good interviews. And, you know, you spend an hour with Robert Plant and see a Zeppelin show, you can do a pretty good piece. You know, but the one thing, Danny, with Zeppelin, uh, as you point out in the book, is that there was this tension between the fact that this was an incredibly popular band, and yet they had no critical cachet. I mean, Rolling Stone infamously panned their first couple of records. Why did uh, you or Led Zeppelin even care what the critics thought? Because it was pretty obvious that they didn't really influence a whole lot of what was going on in the marketplace at that point when it came to this band. Right. Led Zeppelin uh, came along in 69, and the people that were writing about rock and roll then at Rolling Stone and other places looked at them as uh, inauthentic. And Rolling Stone actually panned their first five albums. The fifth album, Houses of the Holy, was when I started working for them, and the headline of that review was Led Zeppelin V, A Limp Blimp. <laughs>
after the first uh, record, the band decided to just take an adversary position toward the press because the same exact thing had happened in England. But the years went by. I think at one point, uh, B.P. Fallon, who had done press for them in, in England on the fourth record, told me that Robert Plant's uh, father said to him uh, that he didn't understand how the band could be so big if he never read about him. Uh, I think the Rolling Stones in 1972 did this very high-profile world tour. Uh, Truman Capote went on a lot of the dates and wrote about them for The New Yorker. And Jackie uh, Onassis' sister, uh, Lee Radziwill, went on some of the dates. And they were on the cover of Newsweek. And I think the competitive juices of a band like that who wants to be the biggest in the world, they'd climbed the other mountains, they'd sold out arenas, they'd had number one albums, they they, they had the, the best groupies, and they, they wanted to get respect in addition to commercial success. And you know what? They got it. You had these uh, outsized figures in that band, too, uh, not just Page and Plant, but... You know, Peter Grant, uh, one of the, you know, giant managers both in stature and in physical size uh, in in rock history. What was that relationship like? Peter Grant was uh, over 300 pounds. He he was um, a professional wrestler in in England. And he was somebody that Jimmy Page uh, contacted at the very beginning of Led Zeppelin before there were any other members. And the two of them sort of helped put the band together. And they were really... You know, like brothers. And and Peter was uh, – he'd worked for Don Arden who was considered sort of a mob-connected British tough guy manager who'd had um, the Animals and uh, Gene Vincent and later managed DLO and whose daughter Sharon Arden became Sharon Osborne. Mm-hmm. And Peter um, had this insight that uh, artists were more powerful than they used to be and could get more of the money. You know, bands had been getting 50% of the concert proceeds. He negotiated up to 90% and changed the economics of the concert business. He was fierce in renegotiating their record contract. He was uh, he was a guy that a lot of people were scared of. And he took a liking to me because the band took a liking to me. He was He cared about what the boys thought about. And so I learned a lot from him. I learned about the power of an artist, about how to represent an artist with, with pride. And, and they were the center of the business, not these companies in big office buildings. You know, I really uh, owe him a lot in terms of my ability after that to have a, a, a career. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we'll continue our conversation with music insider Danny Goldberg. And later on, Greg and I will review the new album from orchestral indie rockers Ra Ra Riot.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to continue our conversation with music industry lifer Danny Goldberg. Earlier we were talking to Danny about his experiences working as a PR person with Led Zeppelin. That stint eventually led to another band, Nirvana. In between, Danny ran a management firm working with bands like the Beastie Boys and Sonic Youth. We wanted to find out how he went from doing PR for Zeppelin into managing other acts. Danny, the, the PR stint with Zeppelin uh, and, and working in the PR world eventually led to, uh, to management, right? Yeah, I wanted to be a manager. Once I was exposed to, to Peter Grant and Albert Grossman, who I also worked for when I was younger, they were they were kind of to me the I loved artists. I, I I thought they were magical people, and that they that they had some weird knowledge about life that others didn't have, and and I just wanted to be close to them. I don't play any instrument, never did. So the managers were the closest people to them, and the closest I could get. Mm-hmm. You watched Peter Grant try to handle a, a, a guy like John Bonham in Led Zeppelin, and. Even after seeing that, you still wanted to go into artist management. I'm having a little bit of a disconnect there. Like, you're going to run into people like John Bonham all the time. Well, um, yeah. He's kind he, of unruly figures. He was a genius, but you wouldn't want to be the guy in charge No, we had of, Cameron Crowe on the show, yeah. and Cameron talks about, you know, hiding in the seat of the plane whenever Bonham <laughs> would come down. People yeah. ran in fear from him. You know, he was a bad drunk. And there was a, there was a party I write about where this uh, guy from Sounds, which was one of the British weeklies, wanted to meet him. He says, "My name is Andy McConnell, and I love John Bonham. Can I meet him? I'm a drummer myself." He's guy was like five foot three. So I say, "Hey, Bonzo, this is Andy McConnell from Sounds," and 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 Bonzo uh, picks him up, grabs him by the lapels, and says, "Listen, I've taken enough blank." from you guys in the press over the years, you know, and, 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 and I had literally had to separate them. And, and for the whole rest of the party, I was trying to calm this guy down and make up excuses and give him extra access. And then uh, understand Bonham had never met this guy before and he'd never written anything bad about Bonham. It was somebody else at the same magazine a year or two earlier had been, you know, slagged off uh, Bonham. And at three in the morning, I hear this banging on my hotel room door. And he's saying, hey, Goldilocks, I know you're in there. Come on out. I want to give this guy an interview. He'll never forget. <laughs> you know, it's maniacal, threatening, menacing cackle. And I just cowered under the sheets, as uh, you're describing Cameron did. Uh, and then the next day I saw Peter, because Peter's whole thing to me was always do what the band wants. You work for the band. That's all about the band. I said, Peter, I know you say I should always do what the band wants, but it was three in the morning. And if I actually went and roused this journalist, I would have been a very bad article. And I know you care about the band's image in England. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said, you should just do what I do. And I said, what do you mean? He says, you think you get those things in the middle of the night. I'm the manager. He says, get two rooms. Tell the band you're in one room and sleep in the other. <laughs> I said, I could really do that? He said, yeah, sure, do it for a while until it blows over. Oh my God. So for a few days, I actually did it, and then it never happened again. But you know what? Uh, I would happily deal with John Bonham's temper tantrums in order to deal, to have the privilege of working with somebody who's the greatest drummer of his generation, to rock and roll. That's a price I'm happy to pay. People go to deal with corporations. They deal with budgets and finance departments. People make all sorts of trade-offs to make a living. Uh, you know, if that's the worst thing that ever happened and I get to work with John Bonham, who for the rest of my life people want to hear me tell about because he is still to this day probably considered the greatest drummer, that's a price I, I was then happy to pay. And if there's another John Bonham out there who wants to occasionally wake me up at 3 in the morning and he's that talented, <laughs> commercially and creatively, 
I'm in right now at the age of 58. I'll take that client right now because you know what? You don't meet a lot of people as talented as John Bonham. Mm -hmm. And if you do get to work with them, not only do you get to be around very amazing kind of creativity, you get paid very well. You know, we were talking about about uh, the allure Led Zeppelin had. Uh, I mean, I remember talking to Kurt Cobain, and you know, there were there were basically two reasons he decided to sign to Geffen Records. You know, number one, he trusted Sonic Youth, admired Sonic Youth, Sonic Youth signed to Geffen, and number two, at some point he met you and heard you'd worked with Led Zeppelin. Right. Um, I didn't realize that when I first met them, because when I first met the band, he was actually the quietest of the three, although I eventually became by far the closest to him of the three. The guy that was the Zeppelin freak when I met them was Dave Grohl, who was obsessed with John Bonham, uh, wanted to hear every story I could remember about John Bonham. Um, there was a time at the beginning when he would joke with me that he would only go on stage if I would tell him a Bonham story. <laughs> and I know he's always dreamed of touring with Led Zeppelin, and who knows, maybe they'll reach out to him, although I thought Jason Bonham did a pretty good job at that reunion show uh, mm. in, in, in London. So I knew that Dave was into Zeppelin. Later on, when I would frame conversations with Kurt and use Zeppelin as a reference, I realized that it was a band that he also respected a lot. But when I first met him, all of his references were punk rock. As I got to know him better, I realized that he really had the full encyclopedia of music in his head from Lead Belly to ACDC to Zeppelin, as well as all of punk rock. Was it a challenge for you to convince them to sign to a major label when so much of the culture he'd come from was anti that? No, it was, uh, he wanted to be on a major label. I wanted to manage them. I would have been happy to work with an indie label. And I asked them at the first meeting if they wanted to stay on Sub Pop, which was the label, that, then indie label that put out their first record, Bleach. And he piped up, said, absolutely not. Mm. And I think that uh, they felt they hadn't been paid correctly. Uh, I'm sure it was later worked out. I mean, at that time, Sub Pop was an indie with limited resources. And he was impressed with Sonic Youth, having been happy with Geffen Records. And he wanted to be big. You know, the book, I was I, I called Chris when I was doing the book, Chris Novoselic, and he said of all of them, the one that cared the most about being big was Kurt. He didn't like all the results of being big. He was tormented by being recognized and agonized about whether he'd sold out and so on. But they were big because he wanted them to be big. He understood what a hit single was. He understood what a chorus was. He had the records remixed so they would work better on the radio. He cared about the bio. Uh, he would keep track of how many times the videos were on MTV relative to Pearl Jam. Um, so he wanted to be big. He wanted to be on a major label. He, he, uh, so I didn't have to convince him and I wouldn't have tried to convince him. I, I, you know, when you're a manager, you work for the artist, you do what they want. 
and that's how you keep the client. But he wanted yeah. to be on a major label. That's part of why he wanted a manager. One of the big myths about uh, Cobain and why he committed suicide is that he never resolved the, the inner conflict uh, that he had with you know how indie he wanted to be and how mainstream he wanted to be. I mean, how much do you buy into that? I, I don't... Uh... Look, I, I think he agonized about a lot of things. He was he was tormented. I don't believe that was his central problem in life. He was somebody that had, had a history of drug problems and prone to depression before he ever made a record. Uh, I think he had a tough childhood. I think he he had the kind of psychology that just was vulnerable to to stress. Uh, I think he had mixed feelings about success. He wanted it. He pursued it. And even after Nevermind on In Utero, he was very concerned about what the first single would be, the second single, what it would sound like. classic Kurt Cobain thing is, you know, uh, Rolling Stone wanted to put him on the cover, and at the beginning, when the first, when Nevermind first came out, Spin put them on the cover and took Rolling Stone a minute to get it, and this is six months later, and he's in Australia, and they want to take a photo, and I called him, I said, do you want to be on the cover? He said, I, I, you know, I don't want to take a photo for them, I hate Rolling Stone, they never wrote about the Melvins or the other bands I cared about, so I said, okay, so don't do it, you know, I, I, I you know, again, I'm working for the band, I, I, I just want to keep him happy. And the next thing I know, he'd taken the picture for the cover of Rolling Stone wearing a T-shirt saying, corporate rock magazines still suck. So he wore that T-shirt, but he posed for the photo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. You know, believe me, he had all the power in the situation. He, no, you know, I wasn't even – I was half a continent away. I mean half a, a world away. He was in Australia. So I think that he got uncomfortable uh, being recognized. He He felt competitive. He felt – weird about doing things like the MTV Awards, but he also coveted the attention and, as I say, kept track of how often the videos were played. He wrote the scripts for the videos. He he uh, kept track of how many letters to the editors in Rolling Stone were about Nirvana. He wanted the recognition. Uh, the fantasy of a rock uh, career includes that kind of success for a lot of people. It certainly did to him. At the same time, he didn't like having people have expectations about touring, about making money, about, uh, you know, he was tormented about it. But I don't think that was the central source of his torment uh, because, again, he had a lot of personal issues before he ever was successful. But I'm uh, not uh, unbiased about this. I worked for him uh, with a specific assignment of trying to have him be as successful as possible within the confines of what he wanted to do artistically. And I came from the business and I may be missing something, but I think that the people who feel he wanted to be indie uh, don't understand who he was because he could have stayed indie. No one yeah. made a move yeah. to L.A. He came to L.A. looking for me. I didn't go up there looking for him. Yeah. How do you feel about the, you know, the, the cliché? And, and Courtney, I think, mentioned it when she spoke so eloquently at his um, memorial service, but that whole tortured art- artist cliché. How much of his private anguish and pain uh, led in, fed into the greatness of his art, or is that overstated and, and, and a completely wrong way of looking at it? I, I just don't know um, exactly how you can break apart the elements in somebody that way. There are certainly people who've created great art uh, and not kill themselves. And, and uh, I think of Bob Dylan, you know, and the unbelievable quality of what he's done decade after decade after decade. I think of Bruce Springsteen. I mean, these are artists at the highest caliber. 
of both influence, aesthetics, uh, and uh, and popularity, who who have not been self destructive. On the other hand, there's a disproportionate number of artists who have been through the years, whether it's people like Billie Holiday or Jimi Hendrix or Kurt Cobain. That that there is a, a height, heightened degree of sensitivity that that some people's um, from suffering uh, create a, a level of artistry that 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 still burdens them with the other results of that suffering. I I don't pretend to be wise enough to understand that. I I, I just know that uh, I know that there are people who've been able to make great art without without being self destructive, and that's what I pray for every for every artist. And I wish that uh, that Kurt was able to find. I, I do think it gets easier as you get older. I mean, one of the tantalizing things was that he killed himself at the age of 27, which is the same age that Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison all died at. And I think his mother, after he died, said that he joined the stupid club yeah. mm-hmm. of people who killed themselves at 27. And and I, I even then remember feeling if he could just make it to 30, uh, it would be better. But um, I just don't pretend to understand it. I, I just wouldn't wish it on anybody. Uh, but I would wish that we'd have more artists that talented because the music continues to be so inspiring. I, I just... I just uh, uh, it's just a subject that I don't pretend to understand, but it is very painful to care about somebody and see them uh, so unhappy and hurting themselves. Danny, one one last curtain, Courtney question. I mean, the book is called "Bumping into Geniuses," and I think that that's an overused word in in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways. You know, we we say I don't know. There are people now who are claiming the Jonas Brothers are geniuses, right? But uh, but anytime I've <laughs> I've talked to classes and, and stuff like that, people say, you know, have you ever met anybody in your life that you would think are, are was a genius? And and I have to say, uh, you know, both Kurt and Courtney are on that list to me, and I have my own reasons why. But I, you know, and and, and they're completely different than the, than the reasons that you know are in the public. You know, people have their ideas of these people, and they really don't know them. So what does the world not know about? Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love, in your eyes, that that, that make them so special. That made well, them. they're two very different people. So I, I think the main thing about Kurt that's hard to describe is is just how sweet he was as a person. It just uh, he, he he was just uh, he he was really really a sweet guy. To uh, and and it's 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 hard to it's hard to convey it. He he could become remote when he was in pain or tortured or unhappy. I never I never ever saw him say a mean word to anybody. I'm sure he did, but I never saw it. Uh, I think the other thing, you know, is just how creative he really was. I mean, he wrote the scripts for those videos. He designed the album cover. He, uh, uh, you know, he would do drawings and paintings in his spare time. He was like a fountain of creativity. The only other person I've ever met who had that much constant creativity is is Patti Smith, who's always doing something creative. And um, I don't know that people don't think that about him because he has a very good reputation as an artist. But 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 it's uh, – I would just say any creative thing you would think about him, he was that way and even more. And the other thing, he was very, very sweet. In terms of Courtney, I, I think Courtney is more brilliant as a person than, than has been able to yet come out through her art. And I hope that she eventually – I know she's working on another record that has some great songs on it and I hope she eventually finds a vehicle – because she's certainly someone, if you've talked to her, and I gather you have, is one of the most sort of brilliant conversationalists, insightful, intuitive people that you'll ever meet uh, when she's when she's uh, on. And uh, 
in terms of IQ, uh, I don't know how you measure these things, but uh, there's some measurement in which she's very close to the top. In terms oh, yeah, of absolutely. I had a 17-hour interview with Courtney oh, once. Uh, she, I wasn't going to quit until Whoa. she did. And, uh, yeah. But that, I, you know, I actually think that that's the thing that they had in common. They're, those are two of the smartest people I ever met. Yes. Now, they displayed the, that in very different ways. You know, Kurt was very quiet, and if he didn't think you were up to his level of intellect, he wasn't going to play with you. However, once no, you and Kurt yourself, was more di- and Kurt was more disciplined as an artist. I mean, he was he produced uh, several very very memorable records in a short length of time, and 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 he he had the ability to harness his brilliance in a way that that she has not yet yet achieved. But but uh, conversationally, I mean, she's she's one of the smartest people I've ever met. I I, I love her. I, I wish her well, and. Uh, you know, I hope that she gets this record out sometime in the next year because there's some very, very good songs on it. Uh, um, you know, she's she's been in the public eye a lot longer and she's – not everything about her in the public eye has been so uh, flattering. She's got her own demons to wrestle with. But when she's uh, focused and when she's on, she's really, really a brilliant, uh, brilliant person and uh, capable of doing great things. Cool. Uh, Danny, we appreciate the insight so much. Thank you so much for being on Sound Opinions. Thank you so much for having me. It really means a great deal to me. And the sky was made of amethyst. And all the stars were just like little fish. You should learn when to go. If you'd like to make a comment about anything in the music world, call our hotline, 888-859-1800, or email interact at soundopinions.org. We'll be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of Ra Ra Riot's debut album, as well as my Desert Island jukebox pick. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're listening to a little bit of the new album from Ra Ra Riot. It's a song called Dying is Fine. And the name of the album is The Rum Line, which is a nautical reference. It refers to the path taken by a ship that maintains a constant compass direction. 
band from upstate New York, originally a septet, uh, and has had quite a bit of turmoil in the two years it's been in existence. Soon after the band formed, its lead singer quit, and that put Wesley Miles in as the lead singer where he's been ever since. Then they made a debut EP in 2007, got quite a bit of notice. Soon after that, the drummer, co-founder of the band, the main lyricist in the band, John Pike, died in an accidental drowning in uh, Massachusetts. The band was, of course, stunned, but decided to carry on soon after, ended up having a pretty big reception at the CMJ Music Conference in New York City in late 2007, got its act together enough to start preparing songs for its uh, debut album. A mini bidding war ensued. They ended up signing with Barsook, a very fine independent label out of the Pacific Northwest, which uh, most notably spawned Death Cab for Cutie. And now it's out. It's called The Rum Line. Here's a track from it, Ghost Under Rocks, from Ra Ra Riot on Sound Opinions.
that's Ghost Under Rocks by Ra Ra Riot, their uh, first actual album, The Rum Line. Greg, it's gotten a lot of press, this record, both from the New York media, uh, New York Times, the Daily News, and all those papers, as well as the indie rock underground web world. And everybody is just bowing to the story. It, obviously, it's a tragic story, okay? But but then we have to listen to the record. <laughs> I hate this record. I cannot pull my punches. Wow, really? I, I really dislike this record. A lot of people are, are noting that there's a little bit of a similarity to Arcade Fire and its brand of orchestral pop, especially the first big Arcade Fire album Funeral, where where obviously it was about deaths in that family, and this is talking about death in part and all that nautical imagery. I think it's wrong to call it orchestral pop because mm. what you basically have is another of these new wave of new wave dance bands of the sort that are so popular in Brooklyn right now and that have long since become cliched. Mm. They're augmented by a string section. You put a few strings on top of an otherwise straightforward kind of dancey groove. That doesn't mean it's orchestral pop, not in the great pet sounds tradition or even in the arcade fire tradition. On top of all that, these guys first started having their buzz build the same time as Vampire Weekend, and they share many of those traits, that sort of, you know, hyper preppiness and that, you know, we're so educated, we're so erudite, we're naming our <laughs> album after a, a nautical term, and then we go sailing off the Cape. It's like, oh man, give me a break. It just left me so cold. There's no emotion in this record for all no the, emotion all wow. the press talking about the the loss of a dear friend who started the band there is no blood and guts no soul on this music oh you're you're nuts you're nuts it's a elegiac record a autumnal sounding the, the one thing that surprised me about this record is how relatively downcast it was and there is definitely a sense of not gloom necessarily but certainly a sense of, of loss and of passage and, uh, you know, you can feel it in the music. The one thing that surprised me here was the fact that their live shows are incredibly energetic. And uh, that is not really well represented here. One of the things I really liked about their EP was that they had this song called Everest on it. It was one of my favorite tracks on that. And, and that was that sort of hurtling, moody, yet really propulsive sound that really reminded me of early R.E.M., They don't quite get there again on this particular record. It's very much uh, a record that is looking back on the loss of their drummer, and you can still see they haven't quite gotten over it. I think it's a beautiful record, but I think it shows only one side of this band, and I, I would say that's my main objection to it. I'm giving it a burn it, but I think this is a terrific band, and I think you're nuts. I think there's a lot of emotion in this I, record. I know, just wish it was a little bit more uh, multidimensional. You're hearing REM circa murmur. I'm hearing mediocre third tier Echo and the Bunnymen. <laughs> you're hearing autumnal and elegic, and I'm hearing, I'm hearing uh, hollow. I'm sorry. It's a trash it record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. You remember, we were shipwrecked together. As often as possible, we like to take a trip to the desert island and pick a record we cannot live without, and this week it's Jim DeRigatis' turn. 
Thank you, Mr. Cott. Um, you know, when it comes to Desert Island jukebox picks, there's any number of great bands from the early 90s, the alternative explosion, that deserve a little bit more attention that have been forgotten. Sure, we remember the Holes, uh, and we remember the uh, Nirvana, obviously, we just talked about. But uh, what about Zuzu's Petals? Zuzu's Petals is a band from Minneapolis in the early 90s that uh, is, is having a bit of a, a resurgence right now, thanks to the fact there's a new Best Of, a 20-track compilation, kicking our own asses, the best of Zuzu's pedals, as well as a memoir written by Lori Lindeen. She was one of the uh, leaders of the band. It's a trio, three songwriters, three vocalists at times. Lori Lindeen um, is kind of the most interesting woman in the band, though, because she had uh, suffered a, a serious bout with MS, was living in, in Madison, Wisconsin, recovered from this and decided, I've gotten like a second lease on life. What do I want to do with it? I'm going to move to Minneapolis and form a rock band. <laughs> and she did, along with Linda Pittman, the drummer, who uh, wrote some of the songs she went on to play uh, and still plays with Steve Wynn. She was part of the band when they were on the show. And with a, a bass player, Colleen Elwood, they were friends first and foremost, and then they decided to be a band. They learned to play together. It was rough listening at times, but they got better and better as they went on to record for Twin Tone. They had a lot of help and a lot of fans in the uh, Minneapolis music community, including later on, most famously, Lori married Paul Westerberg. They have a son together. She writes about her experiences as a mom and and as a musician in that book, which just came out in paperback. It's It's a really fun read. Pedal Pusher, a rock and roll Cinderella story. But for me, when I want to think about Zuzu's pedals, I'd rather listen to them than read about them. And she was already dealing with that Cinderella notion of rock and roll early on in their career with a great song called Cinderella's Daydream. Here is Zuzu's Petals, named obviously after the uh, the line from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Jimmy Stewart has Zuzu's Petals in his pockets, right, when he comes back from his life-changing experience. Zuzu's Petals had life-changing experience, and uh, then he changed my life and made it better by seeing him. Here's Cinderella's Daydream by Zuzu's Petals on Sound Opinions.
Zuzu's Petals, Cinderella's Daydream. What do we have next week, Greg? Jim, we're going to be digging deep again next week. Uh, we are going to unearth some buried treasures, some of the great records that have been out in the last few months but are underneath the mainstream radar, and we feel you need to know about them. We have some thank yous to say, as always. Sound Opinions was produced by the ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with some interning help from Dylan Peterson. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, is Tori Southside Malatia, a man who knows how to do the chicken dance at a wedding. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. The number you have reached has been disconnected. New messages. Hey, guys, this is uh, Taylor calling from Saratoga Springs, New York. Um, Just saying that Jeepers! I mean, you can't you can't have a back to school episode without songs that are more being excited about school and, and songs that can maybe quell those end of summer blues that you guys are feeling. And I know it's probably the cheesiest pick ever, but you got to play Beach Boys. Be true to your school. That's a song where it still has that good summer energy for it, the kind of stuff you hear in Fun, 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 and those other I Get Around, Shut Down. But at the same time, it's getting you excited about school. And sure, once you actually get to school, that excitement's gone, but it's, it's a good glimmer of hope. Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school. Hi, this is Kari. I'm calling from Chicago. I just finished listening to your Back to School special. And i got to say, I had a great time listening to it. But what really surprised me is that I'd never heard the White Stripes song before, except when I was watching Napoleon Dynamite. Really glad to know where it came from. I see you're drinking 1%. Is that because you think you're fat? Because you're not. You could be drinking whole if you wanted to. Thanks, guys. Bye. Safely walk to school without a sound. Hey, this is Jake from Philadelphia. Um, I'm hearing your show for the first time, and I'm like really happy that you played Punk Rock Girl by the Dead Milkman, the greatest Philadelphia song ever written. And yeah, it just makes me really happy to hear it on the radio. Alright, so yeah, thanks. Um, bye. We got into a car away, we started rolling I said how much you pay for this Said nothing, man, it's stolen Pump rock girl, you look so wild Let's have a child, we'll name her mini pro Just you and me Eat butch banana swirl Just you and me We'll travel around the world Just you and me Pump rock girl 
guys. Great show. This is Kevin from Oak Park, Illinois. Uh, regarding your commentary on the Walkman, I think you left out the key thing, which is they basically sound like a Doors ripoff. So you see you in the ground below A glass ball in the sky a very uneventful couple of minutes listening to them, and I certainly would burn it. I would not buy it. Peace. I love music, but I find music critics to be annoying, kind of like preachers and people like that. But your show is reminiscent of a huge, putrefied pile of puke. Thank you. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.